Okay, hello friends and welcome to the Chabura. For those who are here for the first time, welcome. We're an online Bet Midrash comprised of international students offering cutting-edge Torah for you to learn anytime, anywhere. Just a note to say that if you're watching or hearing this public shoot on YouTube or podcast, know that the Chabura has a members component to it. This includes a whole range of exclusive classes for our members that are not publicly available. Aside for the unique curriculum of classes in video and podcast form, our members receive a free book shipped to them each year, have the opportunity to write for our journals, our books, attend live events, and to connect with hundreds of like-minded individuals from over 20 countries. In order to access all of this, you can become a member at thechabura.com slash join, and I'll put that link in the chat box. Uh, we don't make a profit from any of our projects, so we appreciate the support of our members in ensuring the Chabura continues to provide cutting-edge Torah to a global audience. So if you enjoy what we're doing at the Chabura, please consider becoming a member today in time for our new curriculum beginning in September. Visit our website to find out more. And uh, moving on to tonight. Tonight is our last Sunday special before our break and launch of new curriculum. And we have the privilege of having Rabbi Brendan Stern with us, who will be speaking about the fascinating topic of halakha and the Bitcoin revolution. Um, a, little bit about, a little about our speaker. Uh, since his arrival in London, the Australian-born Rabbi Stern has taken the community by storm. The dynamic rabbi's ability to convey the Torah's eternal teaching in a, relata- a relatable and palatable manner has made him a sought-after fixture across a vast spectrum of the community. He has a unique ability to synthesize the timeless, the timely, masterfully navigating the most cutting-edge developments of business, medicine, science, and technology to bring the Torah alive in the 21st century. And I'd also like to mention how this approach and the topic of the shiur fits in perfectly with the key feature of the classical Sephardi approach to Torah, which we aim to uphold at the Chabura, namely the Torah inhabits, speaks, and informs reality, and our Chachamim's willingness and ability to deal with the cutting-edge realities of our time through the lens of Torah. Uh, so thank you, everyone, for coming, and thank you so much, Rabbi Stern, for being here with us. It is an honor, and the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Ohad. Thank you to Sina and the team at the Chabura. It's a big zchut, big honor for me on a personal level to have been invited to this August forum and to share some uh, Torah with you, those here uh, physically, here virtually, and those watching in the future. So as Ohad said, the, the topic we're going to go through this evening or this morning, depending on where you are, this afternoon, is that of Bitcoin or cryptocurrency and the halachic, some of the halachic aspects halachic ramifications of this nascent and new uh, topic, I guess. And as I was just saying a moment ago, there's, when trying to prepare a shiur on a topic such as this, it's quite difficult because since it's such a cutting-edge topic and it's so new, even though it hasn't just started the last few years, but it's, it's really kicked off with a bang over the last few years, uh, so that there's very little literature, halachic literature on the topic. Do my research on the topic. Uh, really, the, the, the only big world-renowned posseg I could find that had actually dealt with it was uh, Rav Asher Weiss of Yerushalayim. Um, he's got some connection to some individuals in, in the Chabura. And anyone that knows him knows that it's not a surprise that he would be on the big world-renowned posseg that actually deals with this because to really deal with these cutting-edge topics, you need to have an understanding of both the mitziot of the reality and also the halakha. Now, there are many Tamarei Chachamim around there who understand halakha very well, but in order to deal with a topic such as this, you really have to get into the nitty-gritty understanding of economics, understanding of finance, understanding of technology. 
and that's something which Rob Osherweiss has been able to do um, to, a, to a great degree. And a lot of what I'm going to uh, present this evening, um, I've picked up from him as well as some other sources as well. So before we start, before we go through the halakhic topic of Bitcoin, I'm going to use the terms Bitcoin and cryptocurrency a bit interchangeably. Um, but in order to, to do a bit of a deep dive into the halakhic side of things, but to take a step back and, and understand a bit of the history behind money and the monetary system, and then once we understand a little bit of the history of the money system, then we can see the, the, what, what Bitcoin has come and, and tried to accomplish. And once we understand that a little bit, really on a surface level, we're not going to go in depth into, uh, into, into Bitcoin um, and, and cryptos, but just see anyone who's, who's not in the, in the sugya, so to speak, they can understand what we're dealing with, and then, then we'll uh, try to tackle a few halakhic permutations um, of, of, uh, of Bitcoin. So in order to understand that, we have to understand what money really is. So the truth is that money, we, we come to think of money as being coins, uh, a 50 cent coin, a 50p coin, whatever the currency is um, in, the, in the country that, that you live in. But historically, money was, had, has no intrinsic value and was just something that was used in order to buy things. So that could be a metal coin like it's used today um, in, in many countries. It could be a piece of paper. It could be something as simple as a seashell. Um, or as we have now, you have plastic cards, which we use with debit cards and credit cards, um, or coming up to with Bitcoin and crypto, it's just a string of coin. But the, the salient point is that money itself has no intrinsic value. It's rather something that is used by people in order to act as a medium of exchange. And therefore, money, the value of money is totally dependent on people using it, and therefore by it having social acceptance. So there's no social acceptance, it's not used in the society around you, so then it's irrelevant. So if you have a whole lot of, of, uh, of notes, uh, 100, dollar, 100 US dollar notes, and then suddenly people stop using it, it's just a piece of paper at the end of the day. It has some numbers on it and some pictures and, and uh, a few words of writing. But people start using something else, so then it just becomes paper ultimately. What does money do? What does it achieve? Money allows people to be able to trade both goods and services. So you can take money, whatever it might be, whether it's a seashell, whether it's a card, whether it's a coin, or it's a, it's a piece of paper or a string of code, ultimately. And you can use that if you want to get your haircut, not during the nine days or the three weeks, but if you want to get your haircut, so you can use that which is socially accepted as money, you can use that to attain a service. You can go to a barber and the barber can cut the person's hair. And similarly, you can use it to trade goods. If you want to buy something from someone, you take that which is socially accepted as a form of currency and then you can buy that, you can trade, or you can, you can buy it buy of someone else. Yeah, the other value when it comes to money, the value is a bit of a multiple uh, terms, but the, the other good thing, so to speak, comes to money is that it's a means, it's an additional means in order to communicate the price of goods. So when you have a system of money, you can say this is worth one of the that, that currency, this is worth two, this is worth five, this is worth 10, 50, 100, etc. So it's a way it helps you to communicate the value and the price of goods. And additionally, another, another positive thing to do with money is that it helps people store their wealth. When you have a system of currency, you're able to store things. So let's go a bit of history here. So historically, I'm not going to go into the years, and it's going to be very surface level, as I said before. Histori historically, there was a system that was called bartering that was in use. Now, bartering means that it, it was, but bartering is effectively a way to trade goods and services. 
if I have something and you have something and you want what I have and I want what you have, so through the system of bartering, we can trade things. If I, for example, if I have grapes, if I, if I harvest grapes in my, in my backyard and you're a shoemaker and I need shoes and you need grapes, you need the wine, I can come to you and say, I'll give you X number of grapes in exchange for the shoe that, that I need of you. If I have something that you need and you have something that I need, so bartering allows us to exchange. And that, that worked for many, many years when people had, they, they had a particular area, a particular field that they focused on. The people were solely focused on grapes and others solely focused on shoes and others solely focused on wheat, whatever, whatever, whatever else it might have been. So bartering allowed people to trade for goods and services. I don't always need to be buying shoes. My only shoes, once every uh, year, or, one, or however many years it might be, they're able to use that to, to trade other things as well and became a trading person. So I could trade my grapes for your shoes and buy lots of shoes. Now suddenly I have grapes and shoes in my storehouse, so to speak. And I can trade these shoes, which I, know I don't need anymore. You can trade that for something else, which someone has. And then ultimately you, you end up uh, building up a big storehouse of multiple uh, goods or multiple services. They, they're able to trade for other things. Now, the problem with this approach it's twofold, amongst others. Firstly, it's not so timely. So if I decide I need shoes, I'm going to trade you my grapes for your shoes. So your shoes might not be ready. It might take you a few days in order to get me the shoes which I need, whereas I have the grapes ready in my, in my backyard. So it's not so good from a timely perspective because once you come to the marketplace, so to speak, you say, okay, you've got something I want, I've got something you want, let's make a trade. It's not necessarily there and then that you can say, okay, let's hand, the, hand the, the goods over to one another. The second problem with the system of bartering is that when it came to storage, it wasn't so practical, especially when you're dealing with the days prior to refrigeration. If you have something that has a, a lifespan that's only very short, and you have no method, you have no means of storing it because it's going to rot and spoil without any means of refrigeration. So then you only had a lifespan that, that, that was a potentially only a few days or, or less even. So it wasn't so good in terms of being able to trade things because you might spend a long, long time to get a whole, uh, a whole farm, a whole field worth of, of whatever it might be, of the wheat or the grapes, but you've got no way of storing this. You have to be able to trade that really, really quickly. And it wasn't necessarily so easy to do that. So ultimately, this form of bartering that morphed into a currency. And they used things which were easily tradable and durable goods. For example, they started using salt and weapons, things which lasted throughout different climates. They started using that as a form of currency, so to speak. And it also turned into gold as well. And these things were able to, people were able to store large amounts of that. So if you had a, if you had a, a stockpile of, of salt, much easier to, to store salt than it was to store other things, which are much bigger. And then gold became the, 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 so to speak, gold standard, which people still talk about today. And then ultimately that morphed into what we call money today, we think of as money today. Ultimately money, as I said before, is just a means of exchange, um, a communally accepted means of exchange. Then that morphed into, into money in the sense of coins. The value with coins was that it was easily transportable. And also you didn't have to have so much of it. You could have one coin, which could have a huge, immense amount of value. So if the community or the society decided this particular small coin in a particular shape was worth a huge amount, of value, then you no longer needed huge storehouses of salt or huge storehouses of weapons or, or, or grapes or whatever else it might be. You could have one coin that could have the same value as something which was physically much bigger. And it was all pegged back to the gold, to the gold standard. And therefore what happened was each area developed its own coin, which was used as the system of currency for that particular, that particular location. 
it's fascinating, really, in the last couple of years, that they found a coin going back to the Bar Kokhba revolt. Anyone knows a bit of history, particularly Jewish history, Bar Kokhba, he, he, was a, he, he led a revolt on behalf of the Jewish people. He was a Talmud of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva actually thought that Bar Kokhba had the potential to be the Mashiach. He really thought that, that he was going to be the Mashiach. Eventually, he died, he was killed, and, uh, and history shows us that he wasn't the Mashiach. Bar Kokhba was a Talmud of Rabbi Akiva. So they found a coin going back to the Bar Kokhba rebellion against the Romans. And the coin was obviously two-sided, like our coins are today. Now, one side of the coin had his name there. You can see this if you Google it afterwards or if you get a bit bored in the next time uh, period. I have a quick Google of this. You can see on the one side it has a picture of the Beit HaMikdash as well as it says his name, Vakoch the name. And on the other, the other side, it says in, in uh, Hebrew, it says, Lema'an Yerushalayim, for the sake of Yerushalayim. And it has a picture of the Arba Minim. The picture of the four species of the Lulav and the Etrog and Adasim and Arabo. Right, the four species that we know that we shake on uh, on Sukkot, you know, the, the myrtle branch, etc., we put all together. The picture of the of the Arba Minim, the four species, um, on the, on the one side of the Bakochbe coin. What's fascinating is that on this Arba Minim, on the picture of the lulav and the etrog, so had a picture on the picture. It's got one lulav, one etrog, one hadas, and one arava. But one of each of them. The question is, we know we're going to be the next couple of months or so. And what do we do today when we take the lulav and the etrog, take the four species? So we do have one etrog and one lulav. But the custom is that we take three hadassim and two aravot. Whereas on the picture of Akhachba's coin, you only had one hadass and one aravot. The question is why? We do three and two. Why did he have one and one on, on the, for his hadassim and, and, and the aravot? As I said before, we know that Bar was a Talmud of Rabbi Akiva. There's a debate in the Gemara Masechet Sukkah of Lamed Dalid. There's a machloket there, debate about how many of each of the species you're meant to have. A technical debate based on the additional letter and a missing letter, and a really nuanced based on the Sukkim in the Torah. But the opinion of Rabbi Akiva, which we don't follow the Halakha, but the opinion of Rabbi Akiva, based on his understanding of the Sukkim, is that you only have one of each. One lulav, one etrog, which we all do. And he says, one hadas and one arava. And the other opinion is the way we hold. We say, you have three and two of, of, of the last two species. But since Bar Kochba was a Talmud of Rabbi Akiva, his teacher was Rabbi Akiva. So he followed Rabbi Akiva's shita. He followed the approach of Rabbi Akiva. And therefore, since Rabbi Akiva held that you only have one of each of the four species, that's why on the picture of the coin, Bar Kochba, there was only one of each. So he was following his rabbi. That's fascinating historically, but it also just highlights the point that in each area, they had their own coins. In the area of Rabbi Kiva, where Bar Kochba was the, the, the physical leader, Rabbi Kiva was obviously the spiritual leader, but Bar Kochba was the, he, he led the military campaign. So he was indicating, based on what they used to do in Rabbi Kiva's locality. So you see from here that every area had their, they had their own coin. So they had the monetary system uh, develop um, from, from, uh, from here onwards. So people start to realize that even though coins were much more useful than, than barter and, and, and uh, trading goods and services, they still thought it was a bit sluggish, especially once you start traveling. So if you carry a lot of physical things, you notice where if you have a lot of coins in your wallet, it starts to feel heavy these days when people don't really deal with, uh, with, with cash so much anymore. So then what happened was that banks started to print banknotes instead of coins. It became much easier. You could have a $100, 100 pound note, 
is much easier than carrying a whole lot of uh, 50 cent coins or 50p coins. And this were, these are exchangeable. This, this banknote, which was printed by the bank, they became exchangeable. And this effectively acted like today's currency does. The only difference was that these banknotes were issued by the banks and private institutions rather than from the government. Now, this form, this system also helped increase international trade. And ultimately, the governments caught wind of this and they, they realized the value involved. And the government started to issue money themselves. And so we had the, the national and, and ultimately the international monetary system. And this really still exists to this day. The only difference is that we're now really dealing with a cashless economy. People just walk around with their with debit cards and their credit cards. Now on the phone today, you can have Apple Pay and, and other similar forms of payment. So not only do you not need, not need to carry coins around anymore, really. Not only do you not really need to carry around banknotes anymore, but you don't even need to carry around the cards anymore because you can have that on, the, you can have that on, on your phone now. Ultimately, it's the same concept that when you pay for something on your card or off your phone, so it's really an IOU from your bank to the bank, to the vendor's bank that you're buying the item or the service of. And they're trusting that you have the money there. And the other side trusts that, that the other side trusts that your bank is able to remit payment of the money that's owed. Therefore, through this trust system, that's how the money system really works today. But really, it relies on, on trust that the bank's not, not going to go bust. Because if a bank were to go bust, then all the money that's owed, it can take a few days before money goes from bank A to bank B. If bank A were to go bust, so bank B wouldn't be, uh, be paid and remitted payment for the goods and services which their client had, uh, had given out. Now, this takes us to the final step before we get into the halakhi topics, and that is how this uh, morphed into Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. So in 2008, there was an anonymous individual going by pseudonym, eventually pseudonym of Toshi Nakamoto, and he started this virtual currency called Bitcoin. Now, I'm not going to go into all the intricate details of, of mining. Um, first, we don't have time, and secondly, I don't fully understand it, if I'm being honest. But he capped the number of Bitcoin at 21 million Bitcoin. So effectively, this meant that you can't have, like we have in the current banking system, the banks or the government can just start printing more money. So what he'd made by, by capping it at 21 million Bitcoin, it made it impossible to have anyone just start printing more money and therefore you have inflation. Why? Because it was, it was totally capped at a maximum of 21, 21 uh, million Bitcoin. And that effectively meant that the value is solely dependent on what people, the value that people ascribe to it. Because if you have a government system of money, the government can keep printing more money, so then irrespective of what people think, the value of your money just becomes appreciated because of inflation. But if it's impossible in the system to print more money, it's impossible to put more Bitcoin into the market once you reach a particular threshold, in this case of 21 million Bitcoin, then it's impossible to have inflation. But that doesn't mean that the value of a Bitcoin can't change. Of course it can change. But it changes based on the value that people ascribe to it. I think it's worth more. I think it's worth less. They're able to be used in the economy. It's not able to be used in the economy. That can change the money. So that can change the value, sorry. It's not going to be changed externally. It's going to be changed internally by the value, the value that people ascribe towards this. This is totally decentralized from government. In order to uh, approve transactions, it happens in-house by the system. If I want to trade Bitcoin to myself and yourself, so you don't have to, you don't have to go to the bank to check that I hold the money and then check, send it to the other bank, the government to do likewise. It's that the code sends out, goes out to the system and the system checks that my anonymous code holds that money, holds that Bitcoin, and then approves the sale for myself to the person down the road, so to speak. 
this is just a little bit of a history of, of, a, of, of the money system, the background behind the, behind the money system and how it's developed over the years, from butter to gold to, to, to coins to, to paper, um, to paperless, and then, and then to where we are today to the, with regards to the crypto um, slash Bitcoin system. Okay, so let's now pivot um, onto the halachic topics. So what I want to do is go through three halachic topics primarily. I might touch on some other tangentially. The three halachic topics are as follows. Firstly, to do with borrowing. So let's say for argument's sake that seven, eight years ago, 10 years ago, whenever it was, I borrowed Bitcoin off you. I borrowed 10 Bitcoin off you. And the value of the Bitcoin was $500. If I'm not mistaken, about six years ago or so, you could have picked up a Bitcoin for $500. Let's say I borrowed 10 Bitcoin of you, and the value on the market at the time of each of those 10 Bitcoin that I borrowed of you was $500. Effectively, it was a $5,000 loan I took from you at the time, just packaged with 10 Bitcoin times, uh, times 500. And now jump forward six, seven years, 10 years, whatever it might be. So the value of a Bitcoin today is uh, approximately just under $20,000. A few months ago, it was up at 50, 60,000, fluctuates uh, quite rapidly. But now it's 20000 And now it comes time that the loan, you're calling the loan in, and I have to repay you for those 10 Bitcoin that I borrowed off you five, six, 10 years ago. The question is, I'm going to repay you now for the Bitcoin that I borrowed off you. Am I repaying you 10 times 500, which was the value at the time when I borrowed off you? Or am I repaying you 10 times 20000 or whatever today's value might be? In other words, do you look at the Bitcoin at the point in time of the borrowing, the value of the Bitcoin at the point in time of the borrowing? Or do you look at the present value at the time of the, of the repayment of the loan? And obviously this will factor in when it comes to interest, which, uh, which we'll touch on. That's the first topic I want to get through. Second topic, a little bit quicker, will be whether a man can be Makadish, a woman, through crypto transfer. You know, when it comes to a wedding, that uh, there has to be something of value. You can use a Bitcoin, it might not be so romantic, but can you use a Bitcoin to, uh, to, uh, for a man to be Makadish, a woman? And lastly, we need, to understand, we need to understand if crypto transactions are halakhically effective in general. Does halakha recognize the concept of an intangible transfer of, of, a, of funds or, or, or money? Okay, so let's go, through the first, let's go through the first topic. So obviously, very important when it comes to the first topic is that to do with interest. Do you know that there's a prohibition in the Torah of not charging interest? It's called ribbit. And Ashkenazi, if you don't want to sound like a frog, but ribbit. So um, in, the, in the Torah, primarily in Pasha Baha, it talks about the prohibition against charging interest between a fellow Jew. It's interesting. It's, a, it's, it's fascinating that the Torah seems to link the prohibition against charging interest to Eretz Israel. Because you can't charge interest to a fellow Jew. So I'm the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt and brought you into the land of Israel. Now, similarly, there shouldn't be any connection between the fact that Hashem took us into Israel and not the fact that we're not allowed to charge or lend by interest. What's the connection between Israel and interest? The Rashi says that even though it's hard not to lend with interest, the market around you is all lending money with interest. So it's a very difficult thing to do. Nevertheless, Hashem took us out of Egypt on your condition that we fulfill his mitzvot. And you should realize that it's going to be a great re- reward. Even though it's difficult for you to do, nevertheless, the reward, just like it took us out of Egypt, which was a difficult thing, and brought us and rewarded us by giving us the land of Israel, so too, when you're fulfilling a difficult mitzvah, don't worry, you're going to get a great reward as well. And the question is, well, Russia could have said it's about any difficult mitzvah. 
What specifically to do with interest? Must be something deeper, a deeper connection between the prohibition against interest and the land of Israel. So we need to understand there are three rules when it comes to not charging interest. The firstly, when it comes to stealing from a fellow Jew, so if you steal from someone, you violate one negative commandment, one mitzvah lotase. If you lend on interest to a fellow Jew, you potentially violate up to six Torah prohibitions. So it seems to be that charging interest against a fellow Jew is way, way worse than, than stealing from a Jew, which is fascinating. Because when it comes to non-Jews, the opposite is true. When it comes to non-Jews, stealing is way worse. According to the Rambam, at least, the Rambam holds that anyone that steals, a non-Jew that steals, technically, and the fact that it doesn't happen, technically you're chayav mitah, deserving of the death penalty. Why? Because stealing is one of the seven Noachad laws, the Sheva Mitzvah of B'nai Noach. And according to the Rambam, if anyone violates one of the Sheva Mitzvah of B'nai Noach, you're chayav mitah, deserving of the death penalty. The Rambam says this is a reason why we know after Dina was violated, Yaakov's daughter, the sister of the, the 12 Shpatim, she was violated. Shimon and Levi, they go out and they, 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 they kill all the people of Shechem. For discussion, do they do the right thing? Do they do the wrong thing? It seems to be that the father tells them off, but he also seems to only tell them off about their anger and their approach rather than their act per se. And the Rambam explains, the Rambam explains, that the reason is because they were Chayav Mita. And one of the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach, they set up dinim, set up courts of justice. And since they didn't do that, they allowed this disgrace to happen in their area. So therefore, they were Chayav Mitzvah because they violated one of the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach. We see from here that when it comes to a non-Jew, stealing is way worse than interest. Stealing, technically, they'd be Chayav Mitzvah for. There's interest, not only they're not in trouble, but it's absolutely uh, allowed. There's no problem whatsoever. When it comes to Jews, even if both parties agree, if I want to lend you money, you want to borrow money from me, you need it for your business or for whatever else it might be. Even if you agree, it's still forbidden. Normally, when it comes to business transactions, if both parties agree to some things, then that's fine. As long as they're in agreement, they sign the dotted line together, there's no problem. When it comes to interest, it's absolutely prohibited, even if they both agree. You see something fascinating here, that interest is such a severe sin for Jews. For Jews. When it comes to non-Jews, it's no problem whatsoever. What's the logic? What's the rationale? If it's something which is objectively wrong, it should be wrong for us and for non-Jews. If it's something not object- objectively wrong, why is it such a serious prohibition for us, whereas it's nothing for the non-Jews? So Maharal explains that Hashem set the system up as such because he wants us to look at our fellow Jews as being brothers. He explains just like one would hopefully lend to your brother. If your brother needed something, you'd lend to him without interest. Your brother or your sister would come to you and say, listen, brother, I need, I need, I need a favor. Please help me. You'd say, sure, whatever it is, whatever you need, I'm, I'm, I'm here for you. Your brother, I'm going to help you out. So then Haral says, that so to Hashem, set up a system. He wants us to look at our fellow Jew just like a brother. Just like you wouldn't charge interest to your own brother, hopefully. Practically, I don't know, but hopefully you wouldn't do that. So, so too, Hashem wants us to look at every Jew as, as, as our own brother. But look at it ourselves as one united nation. When it comes to the non-Jews, there's no problem with it because objectively there's nothing wrong with it. Therefore, there's no prohibition against them charging with interest. As long as for a business deal and they all agree, they, they know what they're getting into, there's no problem. But for us, the problem isn't the act per se. The problem is that by charging interest, you're showing that you don't look at your brother as being in, in, in integral. You don't, sorry, you don't look at your fellow Jews being a brother to you and being, uh, being intertwined 
one and another. So what's this got to do with Eretz Yisrael? So the Maharal says that this notion of Koy Yisrael Arevim Zebazer, that all Jews are intermingled and it's twined and responsible for one another. So that only kicked in this halachic mechanism that if you're lacking something, it's as if I'm lacking something. If you haven't made Kiddush on Friday night, and I have already, I can make Kiddush for you, because Koy Yisrael Arevim Zebazer, your lacking is my lacking. We see ourselves as being totally intertwined. So, so Chazal tell us that this only was activated, it's only started being once Am Yisrael entered into Eretz Yisrael. Therefore, we see that Eretz Yisrael is the place of Aravut, is a place of mutual belonging, of interconnectedness between one Jew and another. So even though the law of interest isn't limited to Eretz Yisrael, it applies everywhere. And the Avnei Nezer explains that since Israel is a spiritual focal point, it's a spiritual center for all of us, even if we're living outside of the land of Israel. Therefore, the Torah connects the prohibition against interest to the land of Israel. So let's, based on this, now we understand interest is such an important thing. We have to understand how interest would apply to, to our topic over here. Because if I'm charging you, if I'm repaying you for the Bitcoin, which I borrowed at, at 10 times 500, and now it's come, come to repay it six, seven years later, it's now worth 20,000. So if I'm repaying you the wrong thing, we have a serious prohibition, a serious problem, of interest. So Rav Asher Weiss points us to Gemara and Bava Metziah, Achmem The Gemara and Bava Metziah differentiates between what's called Tiva and Peri. A tiva means currency, and Peri means commodity. Literally means fruit, but it's, it's used to refer to commodity. The difference between currency on the one hand and commodities on the other hand is huge, multiple factors, but particularly for our purposes when it comes to interest. So, for example, if I borrow a currency of you, I have to pay back exactly the same amount of the currency that I borrowed from you. If I borrowed $10 from you 10 years ago, now it's time to pay you back 10 years later. So I pay you back $10. And in 10 years' time, if it comes to pay you back, if it's a 20-year loan, I pay back $10, irrespective of inflation or deflation, irrespective of the, relevant, of the relative sorry, value of the $10 now. I borrow 10, I pay you back 10 when it comes to currency. But when it comes to commodities, you pay back the value of the commodity at the time that you borrowed it. Therefore, if, for example, I borrowed 100 apples from you 10 years ago, even though then each apple is worth a dollar, I'm not paying you back 100 times one. I pay you back based on the value of the time that I bought and borrowed. So the, the, the value of the, the apples may have changed between 10 years ago and now. I'm, t- I'm paying back the value at the time, not the number. I'm not giving you the 100. I'm giving you the value at the point in time. As opposed to when it comes to currency, you're giving the number of the coins, the number of the currency, as in the, 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 the number of coins of the currency. When it comes to a commodity, you give the, number of the, you, you give the actual number of, of commodity back rather than the value of it. But that's clear. If, if it's not clear, speak up. But, but to summarize, when it comes to currency, you, you pay back the exact amount that you borrowed, whereas when it comes to commodity, you pay back the value of the commodity. Now, the issue against rivet, against interest, applies both to currencies and commodities. So it's important to understand whether it's currency or commodity, because that will affect how you look at it. But the prohibition still applies irrespective. So, for example, if I lent you five kilograms worth of apples, so then I, you can't, I can't make you pay me back six kilograms worth, that will be considered charging interest, right? Five kilograms and six kilograms, so that, that will be considered interest. However, middle writer, according to Torah, Torah law, 
you can borrow use and return the same amount of the commodity. You can borrow 100 apples and then return exactly 100 apples later. But Midrabanan, because the commodity will value, will change in value, so then that will be considered asul Midrabanan, not on a Torah level, but on a rabbinic level. That's called Seah Beseah, measure for measure. We see that the prohibition against interest applies not just for, for money, for, for currency, but also for commodity. So in order to circumvent this when it comes to, uh, to, comes to commodities, so, a, so to speak, a loan needs to be entered into based on the value at the time of the borrowing. So, for example, if I want to lend you a whole bunch of apples, the way to do it is not say that I'm lending you 100 apples, but say I'm lending you $5 worth of apples, which might be 100 apples now. And then when it comes to repaying, so then you can repay me the $5. So there's a way of circumventing this. So now we have to understand a cryptocurrency is a Bitcoin. They considered currency or they considered a commodity. We have to define what is a currency. So according to halacha, according to Jewish law, the currency is defined in one of two ways. Either it's something that the sovereign government of a particular country or area declare as the legal tender in that country. And or it's something which is generally, generally accepted in that locality for the purposes of transactions. That's either something which the government declare is the legal tender or something which is just used ordinarily in that area to transact. So let's now extrapolate this and bring this back to Bitcoin. You know, when it comes to cryptos, we said at the beginning, that by definition, they're decentralized. There's no government backing at all. They, by definition, they don't want any government backing behind it. So therefore, you would think that just like most foreign currencies that are used or, or thought of in a particular in a country outside of the home, home turf, so to speak, so Bitcoin or cryptos would be considered a commodity relative to the local currency. Since there's no government backing behind it, so it should be considered a commodity. Just like if you're in America... And, some, and you start trading uh, British pounds or, or the euro or the, or, or the shekel. So even though the shekel is considered a currency in Israel and the pound is considered a currency in, in the UK, but when you're in America, the shekel and the pound will be considered a commodity that's relative to the dollar, which is used both as legal tender by the government-backed legal tender and also used for transacting in America. Don't trans- transact in euro or pound or shekels in America. So those currencies that are currencies elsewhere would be considered a commodity within the country, within, the, the, within America. But so too, we'd say over here, that since cryptos are not government-backed, therefore they should be considered a commodity rather than a currency. However, it's interesting that in both El Salvador and the Central African Republic, they both recently accepted Bitcoin as legal tender. But these still, at least at this point in time, these are still anomalies. No other countries are using this at the moment. At the moment, there are two countries which are accepting it as legal tender. But outside of, of, of El Salvador and the Central African Republic, so you would think that, that Bitcoin and cryptos will be considered commodities rather than currency. What about the second definition? That's something which is used to transact. So it's true that there are some companies such as Tesla, which have started allowing Bitcoin and other uh, cryptocurrencies to, to transact in. But still, it's not really so prevalent yet. A bit of a shtick, and it, it might be true for, for some companies. I think it's a, it's a bit of a hard ask to say that it's something which is really used as a, as, a, as a form of transacting in general society. And also, furthermore, most people buy cryptocurrency as an investment rather than for purchasing power. 
people buy it because they think they can sell it at a higher price later. They don't buy the Bitcoin because they think, oh, I can buy a Tesla with this. They buy it because they want to make money. And maybe once, they've, once it's gone up in value, they might use that to buy a Tesla. But again, it's not really used so much. So it seems to be that cryptocurrencies will be considered a commodity rather than a currency, except maybe in El Salvador. So and then the, the other proof as well would be that the fact that capital gains tax is payable, at least I, I know in the UK, you'll pay capital gains tax on, on, a, on transactions on any gain, capital gain that you've made through cryptocurrency. That shows you that's a commodity rather than a currency. So now let's go back to our first question. How much am I meant to repay? I borrowed 50, sorry, I borrowed 10 Bitcoin off you six, seven years ago when it was worth $500. Now it's worth approximately $20,000. How much do I have to repay you? So it would come down to whether you define it as a commodity or you would find, define it as a currency. Now, since we've said that you're defining it as a commodity, you would only need to pay back the value at the time of the borrowing. Whereas if you were to define it as a currency, I'd have to give you back 10 Bitcoin now. Even though the value of the 10 Bitcoin has changed, if you define it as a currency, I'd have to give you back 10 times 20,000. But since, as we said, you would define it as a, as a commodity, not a currency, so then when it comes to a commodity, as we've explained up until now, commodity, you repay based on the value at the point in time that the transaction took place, that the borrowing rather took place. So therefore, I would only have to pay you back 10 times 500 rather than 10 times 20,000. But if we were both in El Salvador, for example, where it would be considered a currency, so then I have to pay you back 10 times 20,000. It's fascinating. You see that's really changing. And between the time that I prepared this year uh, a year or so ago, and, and now it's changed. El Salvador wasn't considered, it wasn't legal tender over there. You see that really, had, there's a massive nafkam, a massive practical ramification based on where you are. And it could be that other countries are going to start implementing it, just like the Central African Republic and El Salvador have. So, so if, you want to repay, if you want to repay the Bitcoin, so the trick is to make sure you're not in El Salvador for now. Make sure that you're in a country, you do it in a country where it's not going to, you don't think it's going to be considered legal tender. And then you're only going to have to repay back based on the value at the time. As opposed to in El Salvador, you'd have to pay back 10 times 20,000. The rest of the world, world you'd only have to pay back 10 times 500. Okay, that's part number one. Let's move on to part number two. Part two. And that is, as we said, the question of whether you can use Bitcoin for Kiddushin. Can, can Bitcoin be used or cryptocurrency transfer be used when it comes to the transaction of a marriage or the, or the, the, the husband being a Kaddish, a woman? The Chazal, the very, very beginning of Masechet Kiddushin, says that man can be Makadish a woman by giving her anything of value. That's whether it's a currency, you can give her $10, or can be a commodity. Or even theoretically, you can give a service. You can, if you provide a service, you can be Makadish a woman through the service that you've provided. However, sorry, not however, additionally, if you transfer the rights to a debt from a third party, Owe to you. So if, if, if a third party, someone else owes me particular debt, I can transfer that to a woman, say, hurry up, with this debt, which phony, which, which Reuben from the outside owes me. That can still work as long as it's done in the right way, as long as it's uh, worded in the right way. You see from here that the main thing they have to provide value has to be positive, has to be worded in a positive way, as opposed to forgiving of a debt. So if a woman owes me money or owes a particular person money, you can't say, hurry up, but behold, you're betrothed to me by me waiving that debt that you owe me. That's, that's considered negative, even though it's still financially, there's, a, there's no net difference between saying, here's $100 or I'm waiving the debt of $100 that you owe me. It has to be done in a positive way, I say just to us. 
to theoretically it would see from it would look look from here as long as the right wording is used the transfer of bitcoin or cryptocurrency would be able to a man would be able to be Makadish a woman for doing it again it might not be the most romantic thing in the world be you, you ping a little transfer over but theoretically it should be able to work the only question is does a fluctuation in price matter so we know if you ever if you ever look at a, at a halachic wedding so the Masada Kiddush and the rabbi that's officiating at the wedding you'll bring the, the adium or bring the witnesses in and um, before the man says Haram he, he, he shows them the, the ring and he'll say to the he'll say, he'll say um, do you see this ring who owns the ring the, the, the groom will say the ring, the ring is mine and then he'll say is it worth a shudder is it worth just a nominal amount and that's a yes it is and then she knows that, 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 that it's got a baseline value and, it's, and, and, and then the man will take that ring and put it on the woman's finger and say Haram behold your betrothed to me with this particular this particular ring. But there, the reason that the, the Masada Kedushin, the rabbi officiating, he says to the witnesses, and is it worth a Shavar Putta, and says to the, to the groom, is it worth a Shavar Putta, is because you want to know that it has a particular baseline value. The question is, does a fluctuation in price in Bitcoin, does that uh, prove to be a problem? But she might think, okay, he's transferring me a Bitcoin, and it's worth $20,000 now. It was yesterday when I took a look at it. But now it's, it's, it's jumped up in value. China decided that they're, they're going to allow Bitcoin to use, and suddenly it's doubled in value. And you see, these things can happen overnight. It can, it can, it can grow massively in terms of the value or it can go the opposite direction as well. It seems to be that it's not really a problem because all you need to do is know at that point in time how much it's worth. Again, it's not the most romantic thing, but it shouldn't be any problem. It shouldn't pose a problem. And the mindset should work as long as the woman can see the current price there and then, and she knows what the price is. So theoretically, you should be able to use that. Do we have a question in the audience? Robert, is there a question there? Uh, I've got a few questions, but I don't know if you want to take them now or later. Um, but, okay. See how hard they are. I mean, uh, sorry? Okay, well, a question on your immediate uh, uh, conversation. Um, this is a very intangible value. It, does that present a problem? I mean, you know... It, is it really hers? It's, it, 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 you know, can people actually own the Bitcoin? Is it owned by the Bitcoin, some sort of third party? So even if he transfers it from her account to his account, does she really yeah, have it? That's very know, good question. She, does she, does she that's actually, actually the, the third part, the, the very next part we're going to get to now is transacting intangible items. We're, we're going to answer that question in the section coming okay, up. So now. we'll leave that one. I'll ask you a couple of my other ones then. It, going back to the case in El Salvador, right, well, where, where Bitcoin is also... So if I've understood you correctly, there's a particular Gezerra the Rabbanan that says we, we, we don't return the commodity, we return the value of the commodity. So in other words, even if I wanted to make a contract with you in apples, where I said I've lent you six apples and in, you know, in 10 years' time return me six apples, we can't, with the Rabbanan, we can't do that. Is, is, is that my, was that your correct? Even though in Doraita we can, Durabanan we don't do that. Is that, is that right? Yeah, there, there, there's, there's a way around it, but, but what we do is we return the value of those six apples at the point of the loan of those six apples. Right. Okay. So, it, so you know, when you've got a situation where something is both a commodity and also a currency, you know, you, you could you not end up with a situation in based in where one person is saying, you know, I, I want to pay you back in whatever the currency of El Salvador is, and the other person saying, no, I want you to pay me back in bitcoins, depending on which way works and the benefit of. Of, of each party because one could argue 
you know, it, it, it's a currency. It's, it's both a currency and a commodity, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So it's actually interesting. To, I didn't want to get into the Gemara because it's a little bit technical, but the Gemara basically says that you can have like gold, silver, and copper, where each of them can be a currency or a commodity relative to the other one, depending on how it's used. So mm. silver can be considered a currency relative to gold, but a commodity relative to copper or, or vice versa. It depends in, in, uh, in, in, it's all about the content. So too, just how the, the euro can be a commodity relative, relative to the dollar, but in Europe it's considered a currency. So it depends where you are. So the, the, the interesting question would be, what happens if you're in El Salvador and I'm in England? Um, then whose jurisdiction do you go by? Um, I don't know. The but even, even if we're both, even if we're both in El Salvador, I would argue that, that it is both a commodity and a currency, and therefore you could end up in a, in a, in a you know, or you, are you saying that once it's a currency, it can't be a commodity by definition? Correct, yeah. In that place, it, it's, it's, it's either one or the other in that particular place. Right, so, so even though there's another currency, this is a second currency and it's Correct. no longer yeah. a commodity. In El Salvador, it'll be a currency. Elsewhere, other than the Central African Republic, it'll be, it'll be a commodity. Um, but yeah, so it, it's either one right. or the so, other so, in that particular place. So, so we then have this problem, right? So if you live in America and I live in England and, and we have a transaction where I loan you dollars, then you know, which jurisdiction do we take? Because in one jurisdiction, it's a commodity and the other jurisdiction, it's a currency. Yeah, I, I, great question with regards to the interest component of that. I don't know. You, you, you need to discuss with a Khoshan Mishpat Beitin. I'm not sure what the answer to that would be. But it's, it's very important to know these things, especially for people that are transacting in, in foreign exchange and, and similar matters. Because well, you, quite, you see I mean, you there's, there's massive a, ramifications. And, and, and it's quite a common, sure, it's a common, you know, it must be a common circumstance, right? That, that yeah, you, you've yeah, got people yeah, who, who are loaning dollars to someone who doesn't live in the US and, and then the exchange rate moves and they pay them back in dollars and they may have paid them interest. Correct. They, you know. That's why interest is a huge thing. As I said, there's up to six prohibitions or in, prohibitions involved. But people don't realize the areas that it, can, it, that it does extend to. So people don't think to ask the question. But uh, if you take nothing else out of this, it, 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 it's worthwhile just being on the shield just to know that to ask the question when it comes to anything which possibly might be an interest-related matter, to ask a qualified per- a person rather than, or, or a Dayan that, that, that knows the topic mm. um, because it's, it, 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 there's so many different ramifications and really depends on, on the situation. Yeah. Um, okay, let, let's uh, um, just cognizant of the time a bit. Let, let's just move on to the final section and hopefully they'll answer your first question, Robert. Um, and that is to do with transactions in general. So does halakha considered transacting with something intangible to be halakhically effective? This might be slow. I'm gonna say now, might, what I'm about to say now might be slightly technical. So try to stay with me. If you lose me, don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll sum it up at the end. We're gonna do a little bit of lambda uh, note, a bit of, bit of lambdas. So there's a Gemara at the end of Masecha Baba Batra, which talks about the halachot related to what's called a shchiv mirah. That is someone that's literally on their deathbed, and they they start sort of giving out instructions about transactions on their deathbed. So normally, when it comes to a transaction, if I just verbalize something to you, it doesn't really count because it hasn't you haven't gone through the proper methods of kinyanim, haven't written it out, you know, witnesses there necessarily, you haven't done a kinyan, lifted anything up. But if someone's on the deathbed, there's a special dispensation to allow people to, to bequeath certain things and, and uh, provide kinyanim or give over kinyanim to, to other people 
even though ordinarily it wouldn't work, but because a person's a shechid mara, they're on the deathbed, Salacha considers it to be viable. So the Gemara says, the end of Masech Abba Batra, the Gemara says that if a shechid mara, if you have this person on the deathbed, may give away the rights to an individual to live in one of their properties or to eat the fruit from one of his trees that he has, the Chazal say that a transaction is invalid. The person's on the deathbed, they can't say, I hereby give you the right to use one of my rooms in the, in the house. He says that before he passes away. So the Rashba asked the following question. Uh, the Rashba was on the Spadi, uh, on the Spadi Rishonim, Rabbi Shlomo and Abraham Ibn Aderet, who was a Tamid of, of the Ramban and Rabbeinu Yona, was the, I think it was the chief rabbi in Spain, if I'm not mistaken. So he asked the following question. He says that Chazal elsewhere tell us that one can retain rights to an airspace even though they don't own the field below the airspace. Right? So I can own the space above a particular property even though I don't own that property. But Rabbi Kiva Ega asked the following question. He says, how does this comment of the Rashba make sense? It seems to contradict what we just said in the Gemara. The Gemara says that I can't give over, a person on the deathbed can't give over the rights to being, to, to, to smelling the fruit or to owning the fruit of a tree, to eat the fruits of a tree or to, or to, or to live in a particular uh, property. A person can't give that over because it, the, the transaction is invalid because if you don't own the main thing, you can't own the, the byproduct of that thing. So if you don't give over the tree, you can't give over the rights to eat the fruit from the tree. So how does that square with the fact that the Rashba says that a person can own their the airspace without owning the main thing? It seems to contradict the Gemara, Rabbi Kivega asked. The explanation is as follows. The Rambam says that you can't transact with an intangible item. So, for example, I can't say I've got a beautiful smelling etrog. I can't sell you the smell of the etrog. Why not? The smell is intangible. I can sell you the fruit. I can sell you the etrog. I can't sell you the rights to smell my etrog. Intangible, you can't transact with an intangible item. And similarly, I can't sell a loan to someone else. You can't sell it. A loan is something intangible. Someone owes you money, but it's, it's an intangible, there's nothing tangible there that you're selling. However, if, there's, if, if a loan is done through a thing which, which is called a ma'amad shloshtan, you have three people there, a technical halachi thing, then it can't be done. Right? As long as it's done with a shtal, with something physical there, so then it can be done. But otherwise, you, you, otherwise you can't sell a loan because it's intangible. He says, you see from this Rambam that even though normally you can't sell something in, that's, that's uh, intangible, that's only because there's lacking, it's lacking a shtar, it's lacking something physical. There's a lack of documentation that's been transferred over. But if the loan were to be transferable, then, then the, the, sorry, it, the, the, let me rephrase that. I didn't phrase that so well. He says, you see from the Rambam that loans are transferable. The only reason ordinarily doesn't work is because there's no shtar there. Now, if loans would not be transferable at all, the fact that you have a shtar wouldn't, wouldn't help you. Yeah? The fact that you have a document wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't uh, be of assistance. So you see from here that intangibles, says Rabbi Chaim Briska, you see from here that intangibles, they can be owned. The only problem is that they can't be transferred. You can own something intangible. It's just difficult or, or impossible, potentially, to transfer an intangible thing. You can own something intangible, but you can't transfer something intangible. Therefore, based on this, he explains the Rashba. He says that I can sell a property to you but keep the airspace above it. Because when I own the property initially, I own everything there. I own the ground and I own the airspace. Now, since I own the airspace along with the property, I can sell the property 
and maintain the airspace, even though the airspace is intangible. Because intangibles can be owned, they just can't be transferred. As long as I already own that intangible, I own the airspace above the house, with the house, I can get rid of the house and maintain ownership over the intangible. I can't sell that intangible. I can't sell that airspace. I can't sell the fruit from the tree without selling the tree. Because you can't transfer something intangible, but you can own something intangible. You can own something intangible. So let's extrapolate this to Bitcoin. Based on this, if we were to stop here, you would think that you shouldn't be able to buy or sell something intangible such as crypto. But money, even though if I, if I, if I ping you money or, or, or I do a bank transfer, you could say it's also intangible, but it's not really because the bank have an IOU and the money is in the bank. But here, when it comes to Bitcoin, it's just a whole bunch of code which is, which is uh, attributed to me. So based on this, you would think they'd be prohibited to trade with, trade with, with a crypto. The Marshall says, he says that, no, that this prohibition against trading something intangible, that's only when something that's intangible that could become or will become tangible. But something that will never become tangible, it says then you can trade, you can transfer. And it says, furthermore, we have a notion, a halachic notion of what's called a situmta. The Gemara and Baba Mitzir and other places talks about. Situmta basically means that you follow the local marketplace. See, if the local marketplace says that shaking hands is considered a form of transacting, so that's a situmta, that's, a, that's the, 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 local, uh, the, the, the local method, and therefore you follow that. So therefore, based on this, based on the Maharashal, we, sh- we should seem to allow transacting with crypto. However, there's a safer called the Pishet Chuba, and he says that really there's a debate about whether situmta, about following the local marketplace, whether that's effective to perform a transaction on an intangible item. So some say it works, some say it doesn't work, and the middle position is that it only works when dinner de machuta dinner accepts it. Now, based on this, it brings us to Bitcoin. Since Bitcoin is intangible, so ostensibly, you shouldn't be able to purchase it unless one of two things, unless you rely on the Maharashal, he says that you can trade something intangible that will never become, intang- that will never become tangible. And Bitcoin is always going to remain intangible. Cryptos will always remain intangible. Therefore, you have to either rely on the Maharashal that says it will therefore work because it's never going to become tangible. Or alternatively, alternatively you have to rely on the assumption that Siltumta works for intangibles since the local marketplace accepts it. Now, all this is only relevant when it comes to purchasing Bitcoins with other currency. In other words, can I sell, can I, can I buy Bitcoin with my pound or with my dollars, with my euro, with my shekel? But what about actually using Bitcoin to purchase other things? In other words, you've got two directions. Here. You've got using, quote unquote, normal currency to buy crypto. This we can say that it can work either, either by assuming, like the Marashal, that since it'll never become tangible, it's fine. Or that Situmta, local marketplace, accepts it, so therefore be fine. What about the other hand? What about using Bitcoin or using crypto to purchase a good, purchase a car, purchase pizza, whatever else it might be? It's called a Kenyan Kesef. Can you use a Bitcoin or crypto for a Kenyan Kesef for buying something, for, for buying good or service? The Gemara Masecha Kedushin, the Gemara says that when it comes to real estate, real estate can be acquired either with money, documentation, or with chazaka, with established use. When it comes to metal to them, which are immovable items, that can only be acquired through what's called a kinyan meshicha when you actually pick up or move the item. So therefore, we see from here that when using Bitcoin to purchase something, the movable items wouldn't be an issue because all it takes is for you to pick up that pizza. I, I, I ping the pizza man uh, a Bitcoin and I pick up the pizza, so therefore I've acquired it and there's no problem there. 
The question is, can I use a Bitcoin to buy real estate? Because again, one of the three ways you can acquire real estate is with money. So will we say that, that it would work? Can you use something intangible when there's no transfer of money, but there's a transfer of a Bitcoin over here? So it's interesting that there seems to be a stir, a contradiction in the, in, in, in the, in, in the Rambam. We'll finish with this. This will be the last thing we do. The Rambam on the one hand in Hilchot Ishut, the Rambam says that a man cannot be Makadish a woman with funds that he's loaned her because these funds belong to her. And therefore, there's, nothing, there's no physical benefit that he's giving her. So you can't say, that I'm, 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 as we said, I think we said a bit earlier, a man can't say to the woman that I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to let you off that loan on condition that, that, you become, yeah, that, that you become married to me or, or betrothed to me. I'm me waiving that loan. The Rambam says that it doesn't work. Rush explains because forgiving alone is not enough. But the Balea Tosfot explain that the benefit, if you, if you, if your man says, behold, behold you're betrothed to me, with a benefit from the loan no longer being payable, in other words, a bit of a, just a technical uh, get around, but by changing the wording, not just that by me forgiving the loan, but to the benefit that you receive by me forgiving the loan, then it does work. Okay, so that's a Rambam on the one hand, that normally you can't be Makalish a woman through just forgiving a loan. Unless it's done in a particular wording. There's a Rambam also in Hilcham Mechira, the seventh parrot. The Rambam says, that what happens if you have Reuven that owes money to Shimon? Right? Man A that owes money to, to man B. And then Shimon says to him, Shimon says to Reuven, okay, you owe me money, but you have something that I want. So sell me this thing which I want from you in exchange for the money that you owe me. Do you owe me $100? Shimon says to Reuven. That I want this very expensive pizza from you in exchange for the hundred dollars that you owe me. So I'll buy the pizza off you and then we'll, we'll call it even. The Rambam says that that's considered like a proper transfer of, of money, a proper transfer of cash. And therefore, even though it's a, therefore it's considered totally fine and it's a valid kinyan. Now the Ravid asks the question, he says, why is it when it comes to forgiving a loan, it works? The Rambam says it works straight away when it comes to Nechira, when it comes to Money thing. Someone owes me money, so I can I can waive that for, for the transfer of, of something physical. When it comes to kedushin, when it comes to betrothing a woman, the Rambam says it doesn't work. The Balei Tos would say there's a way around it if you if you, if you word it properly. But the Rambam says it doesn't work. You can't just forgive a loan and, and, and betroth the woman through that. But you can forgive a loan and, and take something physical. Why does it work for the taking something physical? It doesn't work for betrothing a woman. For the Avner Miluim, he says when it comes to kedushin, the critical component is the benefit. As long as the husband or the groom provides a benefit of monetary value, so then it's considered valid. And if not, it's not considered valid. When it comes to property, when it comes to movable goods, so the main thing, the critical component, is that there's a transfer of ownership involved. So let's bring this now to Bitcoin. So based on this, it would say that there's no issue using Bitcoin to purchase goods. According to the Rambam, for property will be a valid transaction because all it takes is that physical funds a move. Sorry, sorry, you don't need physical funds. It's rather transfer of ownership. As long as we transfer ownership, just like when Reuben says to Shimon, don't worry about that money that you owe me, just give me that pizza and then we'll call it evens. That's a transfer of ownership and therefore, therefore uh, it works. So based on this, you would say that not only is there no problem of buying Bitcoin with money, again, based on the Marashal, that it's not going to become tangible, therefore it'll be fine, or based on the assumption that Situmta works, the fall in the marketplace works. But even using the Bitcoin or using the crypto to buy something else, that also wouldn't be a problem based, based on what we've said. Just to really uh, top level summarize, 
Uh, for now, at least in most countries, to say is Bitcoin considered or cryptocurrency is considered a commodity or a currency, they would say that outside of El Salvador and the Central African Republic, a Bitcoin will be considered a, a commodity, not a currency. And therefore, it's big ramifications in terms of repaying when it comes to uh, borrowed money. But again, there, there are a lot of moving pieces involved and things are changing very rapidly. Not only the price of Bitcoin change very rapidly, but also the acceptance changes very rapidly and potentially could change extremely rapidly once a few big countries were to get involved, if they, if they were to get involved. Going to be huge knock-on effects across across the globe. So it's the kind of thing that you really need to stay stay in touch with. And the post, I think, uh, above and beyond Ravashawise, I think are going to start paying big attention, even if it's at the back of their mind, paying attention to this because once it starts to take off, or if it starts to take off, so then the halachic ramifications totally change from one, one end to the other. Anyway, thank you very much for joining. I uh, just want to show you just how you see the halacha has to deal with all the the moving pieces when it comes to technology, comes to finance. It shows you just through the eyes of a Pesach, not myself, but Rav Osher Weiss and, and a few others that are dealing with this, shows you that the Poskim have to really have a, have a clear understanding of the Halakha, not only the Halakha, but the Mitzvot of the reality on, on, uh, on, on all aspects. And only once you really understand the reality, then you can see how to apply the Halakha in accordance with the reality and, and, and show that Halakha has what to say across everything, whether it's science, whether it's medicine, whether it's business, whatever it might be. The Torah and Halakha has what to say about everything. You need a true and thorough and in-depth understanding of the reality that you're dealing with in order to understand how to apply halakha accordingly. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Rabbi. That was extremely insightful and uh, really really shed light on our area of halakha and uh, I have no idea though. Uh, uh, does uh, anyone have any questions, comments? I'll start off with one, which according to the opinion which views uh, would view Bitcoin as something intangible and nothing really there. Um, how would that relate to stealing? Meaning, if I steal, that, obviously it's bad to steal, but do I have to pay back anything? It's like yeah, so Rabbi Weiss discussed this, and he, he says straight out, he said, yeah, theft is theft, whether it's tangible or intangible. He said, if there is a way to go in and, and steal someone's code, so it doesn't matter whether you're stealing apples, doesn't matter whether you're stealing coins, banknotes, um, or, or code, theft is considered theft, irrespective. But but if we consider it, if we compare it, for example, the rabbi spoke about um, smell. Like you, you can't you can't take me to bed din where if I smelled your 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 something good, and you're like you you stole from me. So if 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 it's considered like that, then how 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 do we uh, how do we deal with that? Yeah, but but that's there's still ownership. There's no ownership of of. Uh, as in, I, I can own the nice smelling thing, and then the smell is an intangible offshoot of that. But if someone mm. steals your your Bitcoin, then they now have it, and you, you no longer have it. So, right. so then, it, then it's proper theft. Right. Right. Yeah. Anyone else? Okay. So I think we are good. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for coming, and thank you so much. Rav, that was extremely insightful, and uh, we hope to have you again many more times on the Chabura. And uh, everyone, make sure to sign up for next uh, curriculum that's starting up in uh, September, and we hope to see everyone there. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a great night. Thank you. Thank you.